Hello there. It's me, Liam Edwards, your third favorite member of the Dad and Sons podcast. And I'm here to tell you about my explosive new video game, Salaryman Suzuki-san. A game in which a nine-year-old said it was fun. And I quote, the creator was nice. Play as the titular hero Suzuki-san as he explosively travels through the Japanese seasons of summer and spring while trying to get to work. Dodge obstacles, crash through stores, nearly get hit by trains, all whilst trying to get a high score before you inevitably explode in a Mega Man-esque explosion. You can download this game for free on your very own personal computers now. Go to liamedwards.itch.io and you can download for free. But if you like the game or your third favorite member of the Papa and Shun podcast, you can pay a price that you choose. You can match the head of PlayStation Worldwide Studios, Shuhei Yoshida, in donating $2. Enjoy good, explosive Japanese times with Salaryman Suzuki-san today. Welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. Thank you so much for joining me for the 78th episode of the show, and to, as always, take a selected member of the games industry and place them on a deserted island. An island where they can only take eight games with them to play for the rest of their days. I'm your host, Liam Edwards, and I'm incredibly excited to introduce you all to this week's guest. Like many guests on Final Games prior, to speak and write down and introduce everything which my guest has achieved or been a part of would take the length of the episode in itself. My guest has been everything from a rock star, a philosopher, a teacher, an internet sensation, and of course, most importantly, a game designer. Oh, and he's also been an Australian for what I'm pretty sure is most of his life, although he now takes up residence in New York. In New York, it's there where my guest is currently an instructor at the NYU Game Center, helping budding new game creators and designers find their feet and learn the ropes. Although not starting out with the intention of being a game designer, my guest initially studied philosophy, a subject which took him to stints at prestigious halls such as Princeton and also Oxford. Whilst following this more traditional academic route, my guest started a hobby of making and designing video games in his spare time, teaching himself how to design and program through online tutorials, a path in which I know very well myself. Whilst you might not see my guest's games in physical retail form at game shops in your local area, you have most certainly heard of them. His first game, Too Many Ninjas, released in 2007 and was received nicely online, being featured on places such as Kotaku. But from there he went on to create a viral sensation in the frustrating and beautiful Quop in 2008. Quop helps so many of us get distracted from school and work life trying to beat its 100 meter challenge. He followed up Quop with equally as challenging and unique games in GURP and Klopp. He also released a multitude of incredible experimental games and interesting showpieces through titles such as Pole Riders, Speed Chess and Multiball. But if all this doesn't ring a bell and you somehow missed the Quop boat, you may know my guest for his most recent title. A title which has had streamers and players everywhere crying, screaming and jumping with joy. 
The wonderfully titled Getting Over It with Bennett Foddy was released late last year and tasks players with overcoming a mountain whilst being stuck in a cauldron and armed with only a hammer. Getting Over It was a viral success and, and commercial as well, with it also netting my guest the Independent Games Festival's new overall award too. It's strange to think before all this happened, my guest could have been an international famous rock star. But I'm incredibly excited to say that instead, he's here to talk about video games. So joining me this week is the wonderful Mr. Bennett Foddy. Hello, Bennett. Hello, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing pretty good. It's, That's, uh, I... it's, it's, it's early morning, New York. Uh, it's one of the last days of the, of the academic year. So just about to head into summer where I have completely free range over uh, what I do with my time. So what are you going to do with your time? Are you that kind of person where work doesn't really stop? Or is this like the exciting work where you get to do your own game stuff? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's exciting. Like... It's, it's, it's my opportunity to do games intensively. I mean, I, you know, I enjoy having a job at a university because it gives me some structure and it means that I don't become like a... I'm, I'm definitely prone to procrastination, I think, like a lot of people. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, having, so having, having somewhere to be and, and, and some people to, to help is, is good, but I like these three month stints of just, uh, unbridled, uh, work time as well. It's really like focus on, on something and, and do it intensively. It's, it's good. So how long have you been at the NYU game center now? About three years or so? It's actually coming up on five years. So wow. yeah, it's been a okay. while now. Yeah. <laughs> so during these the three month stints, is this when you've gone and done stuff like getting over it with Bennett Foddy? Is this the time? Yeah, I always do, do. I always do something with this time. So I did. Yeah, I did okay. the, the the lion's share of getting over it was in uh, yeah the summer of 2017. I guess the summer before that, I did a huge amount of work on uh, Multi Bowl, the yeah uh, the compilation of of uh, of three of, of or, or a kind of a. Uh, uh, Uber game made up of 300 historical games on a hacked emulator, which was also a kind of work of some uh, obsession. And I guess actually the first year <laughs> I was in New York, we were we were crunching on on Sports Friends over the summer. So you know, there's it's it's been a it's been a, a kind of a habitual uh, uh, thing now. So basically, what you're telling me is you haven't had an actual vacation for <laughs> a long time. No, look, I mean, I, I, I get, I mean, I, I don't think academics should ever complain about the amount of vacation they get. Um, <laughs> there is like, there, there is a lot of freedom of, of travel within those times. And I do, I do manage to get away. Most Americans, of course, only get two weeks of, uh, of, of leave uh, every yes. year. So, uh, so I feel pretty bad complaining about that. <laughs> One thing I did want to ask, and I've always intrigued by this, especially people who committed to working, obviously throughout your career, you've, had quite the successful titles that I imagine have, you know, set you up to be able to do what you want with your time. But you stick to like this regular, I don't want to say regular job, but you know, a more structured role, a career almost. Yeah. What is it that keeps you still working at, you know, the NYU center? What What is it about like going to that job that keeps uh, you going? Well, I mean, I don't think that I had the the means to be full time uh, indie making games, and until you know maybe two thousand and thirteen or something. It was not not until then that I had enough uh, money saved up to make that even uh, even feasible. Yeah, but, um, but that that was a while ago now. Yeah, so in fact, that was the five years ago in which you were talking about being at the NYU. Yeah, yeah. 
it's something that I do think about. I think that um, uh, basically I, I just know what that would be like. You know, I've had enough periods of my life where I, I didn't have like a, a place to be uh, and a schedule and, and sort of certain kind of time requirements. And I'm not super good at regulating myself in that situation. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's just, it's just <laughs> healthy for me to be a, around people and have an office and, and somewhere to, to go and get out of my wife's hair and, because uh, she 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 works at home and and so it, okay. it would be it would be bad I think for me and and uh, for people around me if if I if I was just like wake up well I guess it's it's on me to do something like you know <laughs> a, a huge part of my creative process is is sort of waiting or I I I'm kind of just uh, noodling on ideas and kind of waiting for something that really. Uh, resonates with me and seems like it's going to stick. So um, th there's a lot of low productivity periods there. And uh, okay. I, I, you know, I think, I think it's, it's good, healthy practice for me to have a, to have a job, honestly. Are you surprised that this is your job? Like, you know, going back to the introduction, I think a lot of people who may have read about you or listened to you talk about videos before, you have had a very interesting career <laughs> diversions across the years obviously you were a part of the famous band cut copy and you could have been an international rock star at one point which i imagine to some people would have been ultimately a bigger dream than being a game creator or a teacher <laughs> yeah. but also at the same time you you know you study philosophy and you've been to princeton and oxford like you're a man of many talents um but are you surprised in your own mind that this is where you've ended up like this is what you do well, I mean, in a way, it's not a surprise because video games were really my first love. I guess everybody who's in the field says that. It's kind of a boring thing to say. But, you know, I was one of those kids who uh, the first time I saw a game running on a computer, I just knew. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I guess I didn't... It was not given to me to believe that it could be something that I would do uh, professionally. Um, okay. You know, as, as growing up, I, I did sort of dabble in a little bit of basic here and there and trying to learn to, to write games. It was very, very mathematical and technical, of course, in the in the 80s and through the 90s. And I just found it uh, uh, too difficult. And so I was sort of looking around for other things that might suit. And, you know, for, my, my career in philosophy suited reasonably well. I did that for 10 years and I think reasonably well. Um, and sort of living in a world of conversations and ideas is 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 definitely nice and a and a kind of a good fit for me. Um, music, you know, I, I I think I I love performing music, and you know, I, I really love the guys in my band. But kind of life of a touring musician was just sort of reasonably clear after a year or two of that that it was not going to be the yeah, thing. Yeah, like was... this is what I'm going to be doing for a good long while, and if it doesn't fit with you, it's kind of like. Right. No matter what kind of fame and fortune that may await me, this is not something I want to go through, kind of thing. Right, but when you're in the kind of when you're in the the green room for a for a music festival and you're preferring to play games on 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 a on a Game Boy, <laughs> or <laughs> if you're in the kind of halls of academic uh, philosophy and you find yourself staying up till three working on flash games. Um, you know, that, that those things send you a sign in the end. And it was just like, I, I just, I just started to think 
um, maybe I could maybe I could pivot and just make this my full time gig, and that would be a better fit. And you know, it has been. It's really it's really good. And my job at NYU is really closely connected to that. I feel like it, all the time when I'm teaching students to make games, I'm also learning more about how to make them and getting yeah. better at that as a as a creator as well. Sort of helping me to understand. Uh, and develop my own process. So, and I'm, you know, obviously the students as well are kind of huge sources of, of inspiration. Um, and so, you know, that's, you know, I just view that as being part of my, uh, like my my job is, is sort of like full time as a as a game designer now. It's just that part of that yeah. is teaching as as well. So, it's it, like it, imparting your wisdom, almost like if you're doing a very very long extended GDC talk or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, maybe I'm just getting old, but this is the first time in my life when I don't find myself doing some un- unconnected hobby in the evening. So, uh, <laughs> that's got to be a good sign, I think. <laughs> what? I mean, obviously you're doing a great job because, I mean, you know, former Final Games guest Nina Freeman was a a part of one of your classes as well. And obviously Nina's gone to do on great things on her own. And also for Steve and the the guys with Tacoma and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So Mm -hmm. you you must be doing something wonderful over there. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it was great having Nina as a a student was fantastic. She she prototyped uh, Sybil, her her big uh, game. Yeah, in yeah. in my class, so yeah, that was uh, that was really. I mean, that's a great example of how uh, rewarding it can be to 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 teach this stuff. Is you get you get people yeah. like Nina coming through. Absolutely. I was going to say that must be as rewarding as almost releasing your own game. Like seeing someone create something based on sort of the the lessons that you are giving them, and then for them to then go on and release that and see how the world reacts to what you've been. Yeah, um, absolutely, absolutely. Watching through the steps, I can imagine that is an incredibly fulfilling and an exciting thing. It is. I mean, you know, I think job. I think it's like ninety percent of the satisfaction of releasing your own games with about two percent of the effort. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of like, you know, where you've got to in video games, then obviously it's uh, we you, we would say the indie game, you know. Into the, they're part of the industry that is the indie game world and mm-hmm. you know your games have been viral successes starting with Quop being you know this thing that just spread like wildfire across the internet and now obviously we're getting over it just like taking the world by storm at the earlier part of this year and still now so many people streaming it every day playing it and all that kind of thing what was it about making indie games specifically not indie games but your own games mm. I mean you, you obviously had an had an interest in video games for a long time, playing a Game Boy, uh, you know, Nintendo products back then. What was it that was about making your own game and not potentially going in the more traditional path of going to work for a big studio or something like that? Like, Yeah, my, you know, my, path, said, into, my path into indie games is the kind of opposite of somebody like Steve Gaynor, who, you know, they, they go to work. I mean, there's really more of a kind of classic story of indie games. Somebody who went to work in a big studio and... Yeah. Uh, eventually left to kind of forge their own artistic path. Uh, the 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 reason is that I couldn't possibly have been hired by a <laughs> studio, right? When I started to get into it, when I was when I was uh, f- sort of falling into those uh, forum communities on on the internet, I just I just didn't know thing one about how to make video games. I had a lot of love for them. I had a lot of knowledge about playing games. Um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have any programming knowledge. I didn't have very much in the way of mathematical knowledge, despite having a bachelor's degree in physics, just did not stick 
whatsoever. And, yeah. uh, you know, not, not very good at sort of visual design or sound design or any of those things particularly either. So, um, yeah, it just would have been a struggle for me to get a job as anything other than, you know, a, a, a tester, I suppose. And th those opportunities don't really exist in Melbourne. You know, there's, there's, uh, most of the time that I've been alive, there's only been one significant studio in Melbourne, uh, for, for some years of, of course, uh, uh, beam Melbourne house. Uh, but, yeah. but then of course, uh, Tantalus for w w at the time that I was sort of looking for jobs, uh, out of, out of, uh, university and, you know, just, it just like, it, it was just not, there was no way, it didn't seem like there was any way into, into games for me. If I thought there was, I absolutely would have been there because, you know, when I, when I graduated with a degree in, in physics and, and philosophy, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I was really at a loose end for a little while, just like, you know, I knew for one thing for sure I wasn't going to be, uh, you know, an academic. <laughs> that was I was sure of that uh, because my parents were academics and I saw their lives and I thought that they worked too hard. And I was basically like, well, you know, I don't want to be like that. So I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I thought for a little while I was going to be like a visual effects person because there's more work in, in that field. But I didn't have any training in yeah. that. And I was sort of trying to sort of self-train. And, you know, it was just... It just it just seemed impossible. So what the kind of uh, indie games uh, movement or culture as it did for me was to make it uh, seem like I could do that just on my own, like uh, by pulling up my bootstraps and and just doing it myself, uh, which had never felt possible prior to then. And of course, it was always possible to uh, write and release your own games. I just it just didn't feel possible because there was no visibility of other people doing it. And to the extent yes. that there were like bedroom coders still a little bit through the through the 90s and early aughts, uh, they weren't really identifying themselves as such. It wasn't like a culture of, of writing and talking about those people as sort of independent uh, developers. So I, I just didn't know about it, I guess, until it uh, started to really pick up steam in the press in 2004, 2005. So in terms of like... It kind of watching your students, like the people come through your classes now and the ideas that they have. Maybe they have great ideas and they, ha they have others who help them with programming and stuff like that. Um, do you see similarities between like yourself and like the students that come to your classes? And are you surprised that they have to then go make their own games because they're the type of people who also just would not be hired by <laughs> big studios? Is Most... it like a bit of a waste of talent? I don't know. We, we get... Um... We get we have a master's program and a and a bachelor's program. Of course, uh, people who come to you at age seventeen or eighteen, uh, I guess in the states it's eighteen, um, don't have any. Usually, don't have any particular uh, skills other than what you learn in high school, right? I mean, some of them yes. definitely come to us having made some things in Game Maker or or uh, whatever. But but for the most part, uh, no particular uh, skills. And I'm, I guess I'm not really a big believer in talent uh as a as an idea uh i'm a much bigger believer in enthusiasm um and people come of course with a range of different levels of enthusiasm and your enthusiasm can change over the course of your your life as well the the graduate students come to us generally not with a degree in games although sometimes uh, uh but usually with like a good qualification in some adjacent field like uh, architecture or visual design Oh, okay. uh, or uh, or code like web coding or something like that. 
and uh, it's 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 that we're sort of uh, uh, redirecting that expertise into games. And one of the nice things about games is you can still, uh, I think it's still the case that you can make a game all by yourself, even if all you have is like a slightly unrelated skill uh, as your kind of core thing. If I think yeah. about like, for example, Sam Barlow making her story, I mean, that's, that's a case of a person who has some skills as a filmmaker and as a, as a writer, Yes. Uh, just avoiding everything else in the, the that you might that might go into making an adventure game. Just just I'm just gonna do those things, and it's amazing, right? It's really it really comes out super well. I still think that that is the uh, is the case, and maybe it will always be the case in games that if you come in with like one sort of deep expertise and a willingness to learn sort of uh, sort of uh, journeyman skills in 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 some other things. Uh, then you can definitely make uh, games of a certain kind. Um, so, so yeah. So I mean, I don't know if that answers your question. That, yeah. yeah, that's very encouraging for any anybody listening to this show specifically because we talk a lot about game design on this show. Mm. Anyone uh, who wants to make games who feels like they can't, you definitely right. can. You definitely right. can. Yeah, I mean, I definitely I think you can if you are enthusiastic about it. <laughs> Right? Yes. You got to want to because it's hard. <laughs> it's 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 very hard. Uh it's not just hard because programming is hard and because art is hard and because design is hard, right? Those things mm. are hard. But the thing that's hard is mostly that it happens on computers and computers are super annoying. Uh <laughs> and it's I think it's only uh, it's only a kind of a level of enthusiasm that will carry you through all of the times that Unity crashes or that uh, <laughs> you have a linker error somewhere in your in your compiler or that uh, you fail like certification or this like just this huge kind of list of bureaucratic, technical and sort of bullshit computer uh, uh, hurdles that you have to get over that have nothing to do with making the game. So it's some, really you've got funny. to want it's to. Re- it's really funny you bring that up specifically because this ties into very personally for me, having been someone who's worked f- for a studio before and seen like a big project happen. But then when it comes to making my own game, last week I released my first ever sort of solo project Mm -hmm. and one of the big hurdles I came across was trying to make a HTML5 version of it so Mm. people could play in browser but then Chrome doing all this fuckery that made it it almost impossible for me to to make the HTML5 the HTML file in which my game was being stored on through GameMaker and exported just incompatible and wouldn't run yeah. Um, I saw you talking about that a little bit, so it's weird how that ties in because yeah. you will get you will get uh, horribly punched in the gut by technology sometimes. When it yeah, by technology things. and technology companies, you know the the changes <laughs> to the operating system could be a Windows update, could be could be yes. a, a iOS store, update like, or something yeah, like App Store. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But persevere. If you yeah. have the enthusiasm. Well, I mean, either you have the energy to persevere through that, and it's not even a question. Or it's not going to work out, right? <laughs> no, I, I I grew up. Uh, my my first computer was a ZX Spectrum. So very you know, we 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 had to load games off a, a audio cassette, yes. and you know just you know very frequently you would you would load them and uh, it would take five or ten minutes for the tape to play, and then it would just have missed a bit somewhere because your tape was slightly scratched or because the cable was wiggled, and you'd have to start again. 
and I just would do that. It just was not even a question. I would just, I would yeah, never get frustrated. Yeah. I would just do it. <laughs> and then, you know, I had a Mega 500 and it was same, same kind of thing. You know, if you wanted to, to get that working, there was like, there was often, you know, a, a, a diskette that was, that was working a little funny or, uh, or something like that. Like you just, you just had to, you just had to keep doing it over and over again. And, and I, I just wouldn't, uh, it, it's not, it's not like I had to learn to 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 not be frustrated by that. It's that yeah. I wanted to play the games so badly that nothing would have stopped me. Yeah, it was just it was just a part of the process. You know, yeah. people bring up the whole blowing cartridges, yeah, blowing ex- dust out of them. You exactly. know, it's like this is stuff we have to go through. You know, when you have to the these days, it's usually like. 30 gigabyte updates that we have to wait for on right. PSN or Xbox One or something like that. But if you want to play a game so badly, yeah. then you go through it. The same is with making games. You just deal with it, what <laughs> yeah. the technology throws at you. I taught a, I taught a <laughs> class on uh, European games of the 1980s with a, with a colleague at NYU. And, and uh, we were getting the students to actually load up, uh, you know, Apple II uh spectrum and commodore 64 games and you just see the look on their face when you like explain no yes you have to type in this weird command and yes now you have to wait for 20 minutes and they just look at you like are you you know are you joking Uh, what fresh hell is this (laughs) (laughs) what what caveman technology exactly Um, but speaking of older games and speaking of older technology uh even through the frustrations uh bennett your list your, yeah, uh, let's talk about the list. Chosen. Yeah, uh, all right. It's, uh, it's a full of, full of quite a few of these. Um, we've had like a recent um, space of episodes. I mean, the most recent episode was Adam Saltzman of mm-hmm. Cannibal fame and uh, Finji. And Adam and me had a very similar sort of outlet on games that we like. So we had a very back and forth conversation about some games that we gushed over. Whereas with this, I'm super interested to hear because these are games that... Uh, a little bit either before my time or they're kind of in areas that I've never played before, which is always super exciting for me to hear about. Mm-hmm. So I think it's about time we start talking about the eight games on your list. So let's listen to some sounds, music from this first game. I'm not really sure what's going to appear now <laughs> for the listeners, but let's listen to some music from the first game. And let's, of course, dive straight into Bennett's final games. <laughs> So jumping in to Bennett's final games then, and the first game on Bennett's list, uh, if I've got this correct, was developed by Atari Games. It was originally released back in 1986. 
Mm. Uh, for the Atari System 2 arcade system, um, it, it, it classifies under the genre sports, I think, at the time, because <laughs> there really wasn't any defining genres that we have these days. Uh, it's a skateboarding game where players control a skateboarder skating around a sort of neighborhood doing ollies and tricks that they can. Um, but it, the like unique perspective of it at the time, I think, was something that hadn't really been seen before, this weird sort of isometric skate park ramp systems that were going around. So the first game on Bennett's list is 720 or yeah, 720 seven, degrees. 720 degrees. Yes. Bennett, why is this the first game that you're taking with you to the deserted island? So some of these are games that I just know I can play forever because I've played them more than any other games. So I want to just say, like... At the outset, before we discuss 720 degrees, this is <laughs> this whole, I mean, this exercise is, is interesting for me, but it's its its kind of an ill fit for how I play games. I grew up okay. uh, through the 80s and 90s, uh, you know, in Australia. Australia is one of the biggest piracy uh, countries in the world per capita. And, you know, it was a real time of video game piracy as well. And, and it left me, I mean, I can just imagine what that would have been like, but it left me... Uh, with a with a style of playing games which is I'm voracious and generally I don't want to play very much of a game I want to kind of digest it for its ideas uh, absorb them into my body and then move move along and I want to do that with the broadest uh, uh, biggest uh, range of games that that I can find that's definitely how I play games so the the thought of going to a deserted island and uh, only being able to take eight games is, is in the first place just a horrible idea to me. That is just <laughs> that is horrible. Uh, and you know, and secondly, uh, you know, I would just say this. I mean, probably uh, the real answer to what I would have to take to a desert would depend on uh, whether or not I had internet. I'm assuming, for the purposes of this discussion, that there's no uh, online you, multiplayer. You the the rule specifically by this is that yeah. you do have online multiplayer, but you cannot communicate with other players. Right, so, okay. for example, if you were playing World of Warcraft, if a big experience of you playing World of Warcraft was, uh, you know, uh, raiding and you needed to communicate with your team, you would have to go without communicating. Is that the same experience as having communication? Maybe not. Right. Whereas if you but, were just playing, like, multiplayer Street Fighter Online, right. you don't really necessarily need communication. But, you know, like, I think that 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 then, the, even then, the, the real answer is you should take only multiplayer games because they, the meta will evolve over time and you won't get bored because yes. uh, pe- people will change and you know, the way that you play will change and it will never be easy and, you know, no, you'll never break any of the games. But look, I don't think that that's uh, a really good characterization of how i play games because I, I although i do dabble in online games and i've, I've played my share of of you know counter-strike and uh uh you know those sorts of games uh, if, yeah. I, if i'm gonna if i'm gonna answer the question that way i have to say well i would take hearthstone which is true i, I mean i think it would be a good thing to take to a desert island uh, but I, I don't play Hearthstone. I've only ever played three games of Hearthstone. <laughs> and I don't want to because, in fact, what I have at my disposal is like an almost infinite number of games that I can kind of taste. And, and uh, you know, with, with Steam and with the App Store and so on, you never really run out of, 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 of games. So It's very uh, true. Uh, but, but with that said, with that caveat... I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this in a way that is sort of less practical, but is more expressive of of, of my experience of playing games. And uh, I'm imagining a, a desert island where there is no online multiplayer for whatever okay. reason. Okay, 
Okay, so uh, a true desert island. A true desert island. A yeah. true desert island. Now, less we're, about weirdly, the experience. Weirdly, it has uh, it has uh, uh, electricity. <laughs> <laughs> we don't worry about technicalities here. <laughs> right, okay. All we know is that you are not being found. <laughs> right. Right. So, so this game, Seven Twenty Degrees, is just a game that. Um, it was, it's one of my first uh, loves. It's a game that I uh, observed. Sometimes I would be able to persuade my parents in the 80s to take me to a video game arcade, which was really uh, anathema to them. They really hated these places. But out of uh, uh, love and forbearance, they would take me uh, to the arcade. And it was just... I just remember being captivated uh, by this particular game, 720 Degrees, to the extent where I was doing that thing that little kids do of making, like, paper versions of it and playing them at school and thinking about it all the time. Um, And... It's a game that I then came back to uh, as an adult uh, to, to play on emulators. Not super easy to play on an emulator because it, it has kind of very particular hardware. But I figured out how to do that and then I just played it for uh, just just dozens or hundreds of hours since then. So I know this is probably, of all the games, this is one of the ones that I've poured uh, most of my life into. And it is what I would say it's the most 1980s game as well. So, so if you walk into a video game arcade and you see original 720 degrees, it yeah, it's shaped like a boombox with like neon checkers and colors, and it has this uh, you know, it has these giant speakers on either sides of the screen, and then it has this very strange controller. So it has a joystick that is controlling a spinner. Spinners are sort of rotational controllers. Uh, the joystick uh, is like it's it, you, you, you move it around the edge of a circle. It's if you imagine a thumbstick that is constrained to only ever be pointing to the edge of the circle, never in the, the middle of the circle. And okay. it, it controls the orientation of your skateboard. And it is on like a weird sort of friction device with a bicycle chain uh, inside the cabinet. So you can throw it like I can I can start spinning it around the circle and let go. And it will it has momentum it has like physicality that that you can kind of like yeah. use this to, to so you, you get your little guy going and you jump in the air and you can try and do like two or three uh, full rotations. And that's the basic kind of trick that you do in this game. And, uh, you know, it's 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 a. Uh, it's like an open, it's an early open world game in a way. You're in a city, you skate around the city trying to do little tricks to earn points. The points get you into a, a, a park to do a, to do like a tournament event, downhill, uh, half pipe, uh, slalom and, uh, and jumps like a, like, like aerial jumps. And, yeah. um, and you, you, you try to just stay alive as long as you can because every time that you uh, every time that you're out in the open world area you have like 60 seconds before a swarm of bees starts chasing you down <laughs> trying to sting you to death. <laughs> and I love the kind of surrealism of this. It was, it was a period in the mid 80s with when Atari had this uh, hardware of uh, really kind of creative uh, uh, experimentation from from that from that studio. And this is really the kind of, I mean, Mar- people think of Marble Madness. I think that's another great example from, from that period of time. Yeah. And also one of my favorite games. But this this is like, it's so uh, expressive of a cultural zeitgeist. You've got this character who's skating around on a, on a skateboard with his hat backwards. He's wearing like a tank top. 
everything's in stripes and neon colors and and there's like break dances and graffiti and it's, it's very, sort of like capturing this this cultural yeah, moment it's very the radical skateboarding yeah. 80s <laughs> exactly. attitude exactly <laughs> but it's before 90s extreme attitude which is more there in those tony hawk games on the on the consoles right so it's it's still yeah, okay it's, yeah it's still this kind of more like the fresh style <laughs> yeah it's this it's this uh, breezy beach beachy west coast style and i was like I was in love with, you know, my parents had taken me uh, to to California. We'd been to Disneyland, and I was just in love with that whole idea. Uh, you know, now the idea of living in California is so horrible to me because I have to think about like driving around on the freeway. But at the time, as a kid, it was just like it's just perfect, <laughs> uh, and I could just live in this kind of abstraction of that, where it's, it's a place called Skate City, where there's just nothing but like half pipes and 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 like areas to do bike tricks just everywhere sorry uh, skateboard tricks just everywhere and and there's all these like uh, people just skating around it just seemed like the ultimate thing my parents were refusing to buy me a skateboard at the time and they, they i was gonna i was gonna ask were you big into skateboarding was no i I, no. I never got i never got to ride a skateboard as a as a child Aww. so it was just like this kind of it was like a it was it was wish fulfillment as well but I just love the game. The game is just very, very well done, and it has a it has an extremely good uh, overstruct like a over like a overarching structure. To you can come at it from multiple different styles and uh, and multiple different strategies. And uh, you know you you I even even now when I play it, I set it up at NYU recently, to, so the play the the students could play it on the on the arcade cabinets that we have there. And um, still, still changing what my strategy is in that game. Still, still changing what what I think the kind of ideal route is. And it's this nice uh, rhythm between uh, making kind of strategic decisions and then trying to pull off kind of quite difficult skill-based tasks as 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 best as you can. Uh, I think one of the things that's going to come through in a lot of these games that I've picked is that um, they tend to generate moments of choking. Uh, one of the things I'm most interested in in video games and have always been is that that thing where you've got a task that you are really practiced in and really skillful at, where uh, you choke at the last yeah. minute, you can and you do a like yeah. a bad job. So uh, that that comes out in a lot of these games, and in 720 degrees, it definitely does because you you know you've, you're ready for a high score. You've just got to do this one little park. You've left the easiest one for last, and then you choke and you <laughs> yeah you screw up. You get stung by bees. Crash and burn. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that's 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 the first game. I mean, it it, it it's maybe it's uh, partly because of uh, the time and the the kind of uh, the the zeitgeist of the time I was growing up. Uh, yeah. But it's still sort of deep love, and I just I just but know I could you, take that to a desert island and just play that forever. You, having you know sort of set out with the the intention that there's no online multiplayer and this is very much a sort of representation of you do you do you agree to there being a nostalgia factor to this or is this just very good games from that period of time that would help you to enjoy a period of being in isolation or so, is so this like for three slight... of these for, for the first three that i'm talking about there is a nostalgia factor for sure okay I think that they that these games all stand up. Uh, I think that that new players can enjoy these games. But for me, I mean, definitely a part of my uh, sort of abiding love and ability to play them is to kind of reminisce 
uh, and and kind of recapture a f sort of feeling from a time, uh, and they're from different different times in my life. But the first three, I would say, are nostalgic choices. The other ones I came to later in my life, so I, I can't characterize those as, as, as okay. nostalgic choices. Well, we will California dream in. We'll keep that <laughs> attitude in spirit as we move on to the sort of next game. Uh, so let's listen to some music from the next game on mm. Bennett's List. And also let's talk about the deserted place in which we're going to send him. jump into the second game on Bennett's list we have to talk about the deserted place in which Bennett's going to be going obviously we have the caveat that the whole show is about being trapped on a deserted island a deserted place but you know let's go a little bit deeper than that and Bennett we allow you the choice of the place in which you're going to be sent to um there's a couple of caveats one being of course it's a deserted uh place uh, so obviously there's not going to be anyone there, but because the place has to be from a video game or a video game series, there could be dangerous wildlife or maybe some sort of dangerous environmental challenge that you might have to overcome or think about in the, in the place you're going to be sent to. So is there anywhere that immediately from any video game that you've played or series that you've enjoyed that strikes out as somewhere you wouldn't mind being stranded, skateboarding your days away? <laughs> I, I would, I'm going to pick it. It has to be some kind of, uh, for me, it would have to be a, a tropical beach location for sure. And there are so many <laughs> of them. I that guess, is very true. I guess it's going to be the uh, Delfino Beach uh, Mario Sunshine for me. That's where I'll. That's where I'll be stranded. Following in Adam Saltzman's footsteps. Uh, <laughs> I, maybe, maybe he's there. Maybe Adam is there, and uh, you both can hang out in uh, Isle Delfino together. <laughs> it's just a beautiful <laughs> place. I don't know. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> it very much is. It's. I think uh, a lot of the time it's either between that or Outset Island from The Wind Waker. Mm -hmm. Beautiful blue <laughs> and green, picturesque. Um, but it's a perfect choice. It's a very perfect choice. And, you know, it has the sort of environment that matches like a skateboarding sort of exterior. <laughs> so we're already on like an, an aesthetic uh, quota here. Yeah. But the next game that you're going to be taking with you um, was developed by System 3 in Europe. Uh, mm. Well, it was developed by System 3 and it was published by System 3 in Europe. And then worldwide there was Epics. Mm -hmm. And I think Ignition Entertainment had released a console version of this. It yeah. was, of course, also released on the virtual console back for the Wii uh, in 2008. But its original release was in October of 1987. And it was on 
all the computing platforms at the time, the Commodore 64, the Amstrad CPC, Atari ST, the Amiga. Uh, it came later to the Game Boy Advance, PlayStation. But I'm imagining, Bennett, that this is when you played it on the ZX Spectrum. No, oh, no, actually was... not. No, ah, I... well. This is a, this is so the 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 real. I mean, as as much as I loved my ZX Spectrum, the real uh, significant gaming platform of my uh, childhood and teenage years was the Commodore Amiga. And uh, this is this game, International Karate Plus, or or as known as uh, yes. IK Plus, is uh, IK Plus. Yes. The best. It's it's really. I mean, originally uh, I think a Commodore sixty four game. The best version of it is the Amiga version. I think so. Uh, okay. It's uh, it's it's higher res. It's it's smoother. Uh, it's 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 just better. Uh, the, it, the Amiga one was a sixteen bit version, wasn't it? That's right. That's right. So yes. Okay. The, this is a game by Archer McLean. It was a, a, a game developer at the time that I, I really uh, a big fan of. Um, and it's a solo developed game. It's a fighting game. And, you know, International Karate, the first one, I think it's, uh, it's, it's fair to say, I may have my history a little bit skewed here, but my understanding is that uh, International Karate is basically a ripoff of Way of the Exploding Fist, an Australian game. Uh, by, uh, by Beam yeah, Software. Didn't, didn't, so that is a Spectrum didn't, game. Didn't International Karate have like the Sydney Opera House in the background of one yeah, of the that's right. Yeah, like, that's right. Yeah, okay, yeah. So it was actually, an, it sort of had this international theme, but the sprites are almost like a, a direct rip from Way of the Exploding Fist. Some people say uh, Way of the Exploding Fist is a rip from uh, in, from the, the big uh, Data East um, like arcade hit Karate Champ. But yes. I think that's much a much weaker connection, honestly. I think Karate Champ okay. does not look or play that similar to, to Way of the Exploding Fist. But it's reasonable to say IK Plus is a lot like Way of the Exploding... Sorry, IK, the original one, is a lot like uh, Way of the Exploding Fist. But IK Plus is this refinement. It's so re- much refined, and so, so it plays so differently. I think it's fair to think of it as a really original game. And one of one of my most beloved games. So it's a it's a karate game uh, where you sort of cartoon, you've got three cartoonish uh, karatekas on the screen in a in a three way battle, which is already like a pretty interesting uh, setup for a for a karate game. Um, yeah. And uh, there it's it's everybody against it's 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 not teams. It's uh, it's you versus two AIs or two players versus one AI and against each other. And uh, it's it's a, just a very interesting compared to if you compare it to something like Street Fighter uh, Two or any of the kind of modern fighting games, it is very it's of of a very different uh, evolutionary branch. Uh, it's one hit knockdown. If I if I manage to kind of time my attack on you, it will definitely knock you down, and I will score either one or two points. Uh, which so it's is, like course, literally just one hit. KO out finish. Well, you're not knocked out. You're but but you are knocked down and uh, okay. like temporarily knocked out. Uh, and I have to get six points to win a round. So it might be three hits. Ah, it might okay. be it might be it might be a full six hits depending on whether I whether I hit you like cleanly or not. And uh, it has a large number of moves mapped to a single joystick with one button, which was what was available on the Amiga. Um, and just really well designed. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, if I'm moving back and forth, if I if I move my joystick uh, to to like uh, uh, down and to the right, 
he'll do a, a sort of a, a low kick. And if I then roll the joystick around into the down position, he will do a sweep and he can combo those two things together, right? So the actual kind of feeling of playing the game as you start to get better and better at it. And I got really good at this game. Uh, the feeling of it is you go into a sort of a, a flow state uh, where you're, you're just, you just become unaware of the controls and you're sort of rolling this joystick around its, its edges yeah. and kind of like the, the, the guy, if you're playing it well, is your 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 little karate guys just constantly in motion, just comboing together these different moves and and sort of defending against uh, the, the, <laughs> the computer, and it's just it's just hypnotic, and I think that's another thing that's going to come through in a bunch of these games. It's just really uh, like something that I can kind of lose myself in and just and just sort of like go into a trance state. And I don't think that's unusual, zen. right? Exactly, that kind of Zen gaming. That's not yeah. unusual for for, uh, for 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 people who love video games. But I I do um, I do definitely feel that with this game. This is one of the only uh, Amiga games that I could. I really felt like I wanted to have an Amiga game, just for, as you say, for nostalgic reasons. And this is probably the only one that I could come at spending another like ten thousand hours with. So, is it quite challenging? as the one player who faces off against the other two players, I imagine you have to, like you are the, the better player if you're playing this one character against the two. Well, everybody's, identi- you... everybody's identical. Uh, there's no, there's no different characteristics or anything like that. So it's... You, you have to, one of the things you have to worry about is whether the uh, AI is going to score six points immediately by knocking out the other AI three times. So you have oh, okay. to. Okay, so it's 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 like a free for all. It's a it's free for all where oh, the okay. round ends as soon as somebody gets six points. Now, if 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 the round ends and I have zero points and the white the 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 white player has one point and the blue player has six points, I'm out. That's that's the end of my game. So I have to move fast to make sure I at least get some points and come second out of three to continue playing the game. Okay. Okay. So, but then, and then you move on and there's, there's bonus rounds and so on. So there's another game as well, where, uh, you can be playing absolutely perfectly for an hour and then suddenly choke on, on a round that was not any more difficult than the previous one. Uh, but it, it gradually ramps up the difficulty and it, it gets more and more sort of intense and fast. It's just, I really highly recommend this game, but it is nothing like a, a modern fighting game. Is it, can you, you can play multiplayer with this game. You can play two players. So if I've, okay. if I've got a friend on my desert island, then I will be playing at the local multiplayer. <laughs> uh, so this is one of those where you're going to have to very much just keep battering the AI. How is how is the game in general? Is it purposely difficult or is it kind of one of those where the CPU is kind of easy? Or can you change the settings it, it, it's, 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 so, it's, so the structure is very simple. We play two rounds of karate, and then there is one of two bonus rounds, one where you have to kick bombs off the floor before they explode, and one where you have to batter away uh, bouncing balls that are bouncing towards you with a, with a shield. In fact, yeah. uh, Too Many Ninjas, you mentioned in your intro, uh, is, is uh, inspired or heavily based on the bonus, one of the bonus games. Oh, ah, okay, okay. Uh, so... Uh, those you know the, those are just there to break up the the rhythm but you're essentially just battling the same two guys over and over again and they get a little harder and a little harder and a little harder the difficulty ramp is is very good uh and and your 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 belt level goes from white belt through to various levels of black belt 
And you, by the time you're on reached... the hardest, it's yeah, I've I've reached uh, like the seventh Dan or whatever, and it's it's it gets <laughs> extremely hard at that point. It's just fast. It's very sort of uncompromising, and you have to constantly sort of switch up your tactics as well. So it's reasonably deep. It's probably not as deep as Street Fighter Four or Five or something like that. But I also just find like to be honest with you, I've played a lot of Street Fighter over over the years, and I I just find the 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 kind of um, it's uh, the turnoff for me is the the heavy reliance on health bars and special attacks in those games it starts to feel more like a shooter than a than a brawler to me and I I, I really enjoy having a, a game that is focused on the kind of the martial arts side in a in a less fantastical way it's just somehow more resonant for me and I, I really I really enjoy that about this the purity it's a it's a pure combat game, yeah I, I guess it's just as you said getting that sort of zen state where you know exactly what to do you, you you're just measuring up the the options like oh what do they call it option select kind of thing in fighting games and you and nothing else around you matters yep. just getting that point and how you can get it that's that's awesome that's really cool and i kind of want to play it <laughs> i kind of want to play it myself now i want to check it out uh, but we're going to move on to the next game now and this is a game I've played a little bit of in the past. Um, I've watched a, I've watched a lot of like retro game sort of think pieces about this because it was sort of at the time an unheard of tie-in between like a Japanese company and a really big Western property, um, and they sort of met in the middle to create this arcade game that was incredibly successful at the time. So I'm very excited to listen to some music from this next game. And of course, let's dive right into the next game on Bennett's List. So continuing with our arcade-themed start to Bennett's List, and get, you know we're setting up cabinets all around, like in the sand on Delfino Plaza Island. <laughs> um, you know we can have like a mini arcade. Maybe we can like there's lots of houses that are on Delfino Plaza. Maybe we can just like take over one of them and make like a little arcade bar or something for you to enjoy. That sounds really nice right now. <laughs> but the next game that you're going to be taking with you is a... It's the most... Not the newest arcade game on this list. There is another. But it's more recent than the previous two we just spoke about. Releasing in 1993 in North America and Japan. Of course, in Europe, 
we never really got good arcade games. We just got Virtue Tennis and Crazy Taxi. <laughs> we, really, we didn't get good games like this game. It was released uh, in the arcade systems on the CPS2 system. It was developed by one of Japan's biggest, arguably in the 90s, biggest company with the games they were releasing for the Sega Genesis, the Super Nintendo. But they made a Dungeons & Dragons arcade game. This was a... It was packaged with its sequel. There, were, there was like two games that released at the same time, mm. well, I think, for no, home console. Yeah, yeah. When they did the home console port, they, they bundled them yeah. together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they bund- bundled them together. But this was the first one on its own that was released in arcades. Mm-hmm. And it is Dungeons & Dragons Tower of Doom. Yes, Tower of Doom. So yeah, the two are Tower of Doom and Shadows over Mistara. Um, yes. I like Tower of Doom. Uh, it is uh, okay. It's a it's a little purer. It's a little. Uh, it's you know I'm a, I've been accused by friends a lot of being a person who only ever listens to the first record that a band puts out. Uh, <laughs> I definitely do have and that. And you're the bias. same with games. I think that there is a flavor of the first release of a of a series of of video games, uh, just like, as there is with with a musician's albums, which is that more of the initial ideas flow into the first thing. And the second thing tends to yeah. be more refined and it's like sort of more of a crystalline expression of a single idea. And I definitely like the thing that has more sort of evidence of the creators in it, more of those sort of years of, of building up ideas and writing them down. And I, I that's what I see in Tower of Doom is just this, this a little more love, a little more, uh, a little more of, of, of the creators in it. You could tell, like, the excitement of the Capcom team being on a D&D property and, uh, you know, being able to explore, like, the the intricate parts of D&D maybe shining through in the first game. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you know, this is... D&D, I think, has been uh, such an inspiration for, for many video game designers, but when they get a chance yes. to make, like, an actual D&D game, you often just see so much sort of nostalgia and love in the design. I think if you think of the mm. Baldur's Gate series of games... Uh, from uh, from by I guess Bioware and and uh, and Black Isle. Uh, yeah, like the Baldur's Gate stuff and yeah. Icewind Dale and all that kind of exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, those games as well, I think, have the same thing. It's like you you can see them recreating like amazing experiences they had playing tabletop D anD. Uh, and I see that in in uh, Tower of Doom. So it's it's the best adaptation of D anD. D rules into almost literally into a. Uh, into a final fight style belt scroller, like a classic Capcom belt scroller, where you're walking along from a kind of a forced 3D perspective, uh, from left to right generally, and then there are uh, kind of popcorn enemies followed by bosses. So that's the kind of structure, which of course is a structure uh, borrowed from original D&D uh, tabletop campaigns into video games. Here it is back in a in a in a video game as an expression of of a D campaign the whole thing looks reads and plays like a like a campaign module like a classic uh D campaign module but it's a really crunchy playable capcom at its absolute 90s best uh action game uh, i think that it, it it's weird because it is a D&D property, yeah. but it's a very Japanese beat-em-up. It's very Capcom. It has all of that kind <laughs> of like uh, juice, all of the kind of really uh, uh, juicy sort of audiovisual effects, uh, all of that sort of visual language, the big animated sort of anime-inspired sprites. Um, 
like all of these kind of things that Capcom was was doing so well, really done to a T here, but it layers on this kind of like intellectual uh, puzzle solving, Easter egg finding D&D layer that just isn't there in most arcade games. Uh, it's yeah. definitely not there in Final Fight, for example, uh, which is the other, of course, the other huge belt scroller hit from Capcom. It's not there in uh, Aliens vs. Predator, which is another one that they did at the time. It just, it's just very, it's got, it's very technical. It's full of secrets. And so uh, this is a game, I said this was the last of the sort of nostalgic games I'm picking. Um, this is a game I've, I've played an enormous amount of, and I, I encountered it at university. We had a, down in the basement, we had a classic university arcade. University arcades tend to have older, more out-of-date games. It's a bit more like they're, they're already like uh, a little bit uh, past their prime. They get them on discount and they keep them for longer than, a, than an arcade operator normally would. Yeah. And I encountered this, I suppose, in about 97 in that arcade, maybe a few years old at that stage. And... Of all of the games that were in there, it was kind of a time for Marvel versus Capcom, Tekken, uh, Virtua Fighter. Yeah, this was like yeah, this Virtua this Tennis was like maybe the fighting well. game. Yeah, yeah, this was like the second era of arcade fighting games. Exactly, Virtua Fighter, Tekken, Marvel, Capcom. Yeah, um, Street Fighter Three. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was a Street Fighter Three down there. I played a lot. I and then they had some kind of classic uh, older golden era arcade games as well. Uh, but this is the really the one that that captivated me and what i love about this game is it's like there's this kind of D style knowledge to it it's it's lin- it's linear with branching paths right there are some branching sort of choices but you have to be shown by another player how to play it so the way the the format that it would take would be a more experienced player playing with a less experienced player and somebody being like no stand there crouch wait you know like don't don't slide pick up that, take this, pull that switch. And you, there's a, there are like better and worse ways to play this game, even though it's kind of uh, relatively linear. Mm. There are a lot of choices to make in it. And the choices are mostly wrong choices. And uh, you you've sort of gradually, <laughs> you develop more of a kind of a, a, a sort of feeling of, of expertise. It's full of little tricks for unexperienced players. There's a boss that's a troll about midway through the game where if you don't burn its body uh, after you kill it, then it gets back up again and kills you. <laughs> so and it's like, how are you meant to know that? Right. And then these, like these, uh, these. Eventually, if you if you if you go through this enough times and you still haven't burned its body, some NPCs will arrive and they'll be like, "You idiot! Don't you know that you have to burn a troll's body?" <laughs> You're like, "No, I didn't <laughs> know that." Uh, I, I really think that this the sense of um, one of the really attractive things about uh, about role playing games in general, but about role playing games based on D anD D in particular, is the sense that there is a lot of law, and that part of getting good at them is not just developing uh, manual dexterity and skills and muscle memory and and like place knowledge, but developing kind of law knowledge that informs how you're playing the game. Really, kind of helps to put you in a video game world to be able to reason using. Uh, using knowledge that you had to work to acquire, right? I think that's a, a just a different flavor of experience from from what's in most video games. Uh, you know, a lot of games have lore, but if I'm playing uh, Met- Metroid Prime, for example, I'm scanning all these things, I'm reading about, uh, you know, the the history of space pirates or whatever. It's interesting, <laughs> but it doesn't affect any of the choices that I make. Uh, whereas that's true. That's you start true. to become an expert in like this kind of shared D and D knowledge base. And it, it allows you to kind of actually make 
choices in this game. So it's 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 really good from that point of view. It's 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 really beautiful. It allows uh, a certain kind of uh, like you can make risky or or safe choices at a lot of different junctures. You know, for example, should we go and rescue these people who are under attack, or should we go to the town to get help? Uh, and you can make those choices depending on how well you've done previously. Uh, it has that that absolutely classic Capcom trope of uh, a shop where you can spend all the money that you collected. I love I love all that stuff because it means every time you play it is subtly different. And uh, yes. this is a game that I have just played hundreds of times, and it's still challenging to me. Playing it's it's actually designed to be played uh, depending on the cabinet that you're on. It's des- designed to be played co-op by two players or or by four depending on the cabinet. Yeah, and um, soloing it is 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 not the intended way that it's balanced. So it's extremely difficult to solo it. And I think difficult in a really interesting uh, Dark Souls-y kind of way. Uh, although obviously it predates that game. And sort of like this self, the sense of self-reliance you get from playing it solo is amazing. Also playing it co-op is is, is super great and a good social communicative uh, This game co-op. is so much fun cooperative. Yeah. It, 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 it's so much fun. <laughs> I really like this game. Go on. But I really love this, this, like these, these choices in it that are just very kind of unorthodox. Like there's this moment where there's a, well, there's a long way and a, and a fast way to get to the castle. And the fast way, unfortunately, is guarded by a terrible fire-breathing red dragon. Uh, so you shouldn't go that way. And you'll, you let you say, no, let's go that way. Let's kill the dragon. It's like, no, you'll just surely die. Uh, and it's like, well, no, I'm definitely going to the dragon. He asks you like three or four times, <laughs> and you finally go. It's just horrifying. It just obliterates you. Your chances of beating it are very slim, especially solo. Um, but but the fact that that's there just that's fleshes the out this world. Yeah, yeah, it fleshes that's it out. That's something people would praise Dark Souls for. Yeah. It's the kind of thing people would praise Dark Souls for. Exactly. It's like, sort the of ability in- to take on stuff way beyond your level yeah it's just indifferent to the player in a way that and and i think one of the things that i love about indifferent games is they it makes them feel bigger than the player whenever you have something Mm. uh, experience that is fully tailored just to your exact level of skill it it's as though uh it it's it it gives everything a kind of a um potemkin village feeling to me uh okay where it's like all of, everything that I see is a prop that's oriented towards my perspective. And when you have a game that doesn't always point everything in your perspective and tailor it to your level of skill and so on, it gives you the sense that there are other people out there in the world with different levels of skill or with different abilities. Yeah. And that just makes it feel bigger and more alive to me. And so, uh, you know, that's that's the thing that goes so wrong with, for example, uh, Oblivion or Skyrim, where it's sort of like tailoring the world to you. Like the whole world is sort of changing to meet your level of skill, especially in Oblivion. Uh, that just for me just kills the sense of it being a living world and just in this in this game tower of doom which is you know relatively rudimentary in terms of what's actually in there and and where you can go of course it's all on rails but it yes, feels it's, it's, like it's you know, not on rails it feels like you could go anywhere and that this is like a like a and and you know the best uh tabletop D campaigns have this characteristic too the, the dungeon master has only scripted certain 
locations and certain dungeons mm. you, you are essentially on rail but you, you, of course you, you you can yeah. tell them you can go anywhere but it's the dungeon master's job to make you feel like you're choosing uh to go to to the places that are scripted and that are that are drawn out yes so yeah i, I so, get all of that feeling from this game and i i just i just think it's, it's extremely well executed it's really it's really well crafted so the last question on this then who's the go-to are you are you the fighter are you the cleric are you the elf or are you the dwarf? <laughs> well, I mean, it depends. Hey, who are you? It depends on my level of confidence. If I'm super confident, I should be the elf, uh, who is who is more powerful but much weaker. If I'm feeling yeah, a little just bit, magic. if I've if I've had a recent choke, I will pick. Uh, I'll pick the uh, the fighter for sure. <laughs> <laughs> if you're playing co-op, what what would would you still go the elf? Uh, co-op? You've got to have a cleric. Uh, then it's either the, the fighter or the elf. I'm not a big fan of the dwarf. Uh, he's he's uh, his reach is too short. Makes it quite difficult. <laughs> so we're going to move on to the next game now. Uh, another, I I think it's the the last arcade game yep, on this list then. Right. And uh, then we're going to dive into four sort of newer titles. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so I think it's about time that we listen to some music from the next game. And let's sort of finish off building our arcade our arcade bar on delfino plaza let's uh, put the final piece in there so let's listen to some music and let's of course dive right into the next game on bennett's list into the next game on basis it's a game i've never heard of before but initially looking at videos and pictures of it i really want to play i'm a sucker for arcade sports games i really really love arcade sports games and even like semi-realistic games like you know fifa or madden and stuff like that i do get into those games as well but arcade spins on traditional sports is just my favorite I, I love this kind of genre where people think outside the box with these things and this game specifically looking at the the arcade cabinet and the way you control it um very intuitive very strange so i'm wondering if there is any way in any way shape or form without visiting bennett on his island in which i can play this because it it's not it's not that of an old arcade game really you think it was a initially released around 2000 mm-hmm. 2001 it was in crea- it was created by i think incredible technologies That's right. is the name in the name of the company it's a series called golden tea golden tea golf and this game is golden tea 4 yeah <laughs> not the number 4 as in shit there's a ball coming towards my head <laughs> yeah. i need to duck so bennett explain to me what what the hell is this game and why is it going with you 
It's really interesting that you say you you hadn't uh, heard of it because you know I, no this, I haven't. This is a game uh, that I had been aware of through uh, I guess the from the very first creation of it through multiple iterations, um, just because it is always seemed always to be in pubs and bars, and. I just would always look at it and be like, golf? I mean, come on. I don't want to play golf while I'm in a bar. Uh, and I, I just I just passed over it. So there's no nostalgia for me here. Uh, what what Golden Tea is, I was reading uh, about games uh, to put on these arcade cabinets at, at NYU for the kind of edification of the students. And uh, I had uh, acquired a couple of arcade trackballs to put in these cabinets. And I wanted to, to put trackball games up, like Marble Madness, for example. Um, yeah. Centipede. So so there's a lot of really great uh, uh, trackball actuated games, like uh, Missile Command and those other ones. And it's basically, uh, I had uh, uh, gone through the list of big arcade hits that are controlled by trackball. And it like Golden Tee, Golden Tee. Golden Tea, uh, if the if incredible technologies is to be believed, um, at its at its height at the height of that series, it was the highest grossing video game of all time. What? Which yeah, which is no which comes as a shock to most people in the same way as it comes as a shock to uh, Americans if you say cricket is the second most popular game in the world. And they're like, no, it's not. I mean, not. I've played cricket for 15 years, and that stat still surprises me. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like, not really, because, you know, it's not Americans. But, um, but yeah, it's like this game is high grossing because you can sit at a pub or a bar and you can uh, drink a beer while you play it. And that means that people are just going to play it a lot more. And so it's actually pretty expensive for yeah. the game as well. Um, it's a golf game uh, in the in the model of uh, PGA Tour or Lynx, those sort of 90s uh, golf games that took quite a long time to get into full 3D and just were kind of scaled sprites and kind of rudimentary 3D to begin yeah, with. Yeah, because this is like that weird semi-pseudo yeah. 3D where it's like photo-generated pic- pixel art right, almost. Right, right, right. Exactly. Weird 3D modeled environments. So Golden Tee... Um, and it, it, I guess the other kind of significant thing, there are two, two other significant things about it. One is that it was the first ever game to have uh, uh, online leaderboards. It would uh, phone home via actual phone line and, and pick up uh, world worldwide leader, leaderboards. That's not actually necessary to have a good time. Um, and the, the other thing about it is... Speaking, going back to that, yeah. going back to enjoying technology with its little uh, foibles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, the the other thing about it is that incredible technologies were experimenting with uh, with the trackball, and they I think attribute the the trackball to the to the bulk of the success of Golden Tee. So the way that you play a Golden Tee is that to swing the golf club, you roll the trackball back, and then you give it a massive yeah. shove forwards or a very gentle push forwards if you're trying to putt or chip uh, to 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 hit the ball, and it's a great analog for a real life sports movement not because it's so much exactly like the motion of of pushing a, a, a like of swinging a club but it has some of the same characteristics the tendency to slightly mm. miss the mark uh, to be difficult to go exactly straight to make it difficult to, to exactly you the f- you're trying to exactly gauge to, your power as well yeah. that's kind of very difficult to give well. you the feeling that 
you know exactly when you've fucked up as well. Because right. when you play sports, like if you miss it, something you can feel it. Yeah, you feel it. Yeah, which you, is like, so through. important yeah. in golf and is missing mm-hmm. from most golf games. Right, that sense of exactly yes. the second that you did it, just knowing that you in your you feel in your hand that you messed it up. You've got this. You've got this weird thing with golf games where also you don't. You're never a hundred percent sure how a shot has happens like it will visually give you like the nice or yeah. a hit but the way the camera cuts like it shows you the sky and the ball flying through the air and the, the camera cuts a lot and you have no idea where it's going to land until it lands and until that moment you don't know whether it's a good shot or not when you as you said when you play real golf you know immediately as soon as the ball connects with the club whether that shot is a good one or a bad one. Yeah. So something like this trackball is super intuitive, I think. Yeah, it's nice. So you know whether you hit the ball the way you want it or not. But then one of the things I love about video game golf, and I suppose this is true of real golf as, as well, is that there's mm. this hang time after you hit the ball where you're not 100% yeah. sure it's going to... It's this suspense while you wait to see where uh, what the result is of your of your action. And I love that rhythm of like you're you're focused, you do your action, and then you're on tenor hooks waiting to see where the ball winds up. And I, I just think that's it's, it's kind of a wonderful rhythm uh, for a game. And uh, so yeah, I love the input mechanism of of Golden Tee. I love the trackball for this. You can really feel in the palm of your hand like trying to do the exact same shot twice in a row is like a thing that you can do in a really physical way. And it's also uh, the one that I've picked, Golden T4. I think is one of the is maybe the first uh, full 3D entry in the series. Still fairly rudimentary 3D, but like full, like yeah. actual full 3D. And uh, I think has some of the best course design in the series. At its best, those those guys were making courses that were not wildly unrealistic, maybe just slightly unrealistic. Uh, not in the way that uh, everybody's golf tends to get quite unrealistic. Um, but not too not too bland either and they offer you constantly tempting you into trying a high risk shot that will save you uh, half a stroke or a stroke or two strokes uh, at the cost of maybe uh, having a massive choke and losing 12 strokes and it's just constantly there good good video game golf course design is not like real good real world golf course design because in, re- in the real world uh, you know, the cost of me trying to hit over the, the parking lot or over the forest or whatever is that I'm probably going to lose my ball and I'm going to spend the next half yeah. hour searching around for it or maybe I'll kill somebody. And so I'm not <laughs> going to do those things. But in a video game, all of those things are constantly open and you should just constantly be wondering, which way should I do this? Should I be curving the ball? Should I be trying to cut over this this dog leg? You know, there's so many good choices in this game. And... It is so good at producing chokes. I've had situations where I'm playing against another person and they're like eight under par and I'm two under par and then I wind up winning. And it's just, it's uh, it's it's beautiful to have those kind of meltdown moments. I think that golf is so good at producing meltdown moments in real, in real golf uh, as well as video game golf. It's just part of the, the structure of golf. And yeah, so, so playing this, uh, I guess it was last summer at, at NYU, I just really kind of fell in love with it. And I think uh, it's, a, it's a game that you could, you could play forever, just refining your score, getting better, getting more, more uh, consistent. And uh, if you had it's, that phone it, line hookup, you could also get uh, internet scores off of it. 
So we've obviously we had skateboarding and you 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 don't skateboard. We've had karate mm-hmm. and I don't think you mentioned doing karate. Um, <laughs> do do you play golf? I don't I don't play any of these sports. I mean, I, but I but I am an Australian <laughs> and and you know Australia is a sporting culture and I grew up watching yes. a lot of sports. So, but you know I just think that. What's great about, I've often said this, you know, I, I th- the reason that I make uh, sport-related games as a designer is you get so much communication for free and you get so much rich cultural history for free uh, that it allows you to do kind of really good design work um, that connects with those things without having to lay out uh, the sort of the, the absolute basics and the, the kind of introduce a kind of a false history and all of those sorts of things. Um I'm not really into these games as like a in, in the simulationist way, like the people who play like football manager. A lot of the, some some of those people are just really interested in kind of management sims, and that's great. Uh, but uh, a lot of people who play it are really just football fans, and they're kind of living out uh, like a simulation of of their yeah. favorite team, and that is 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 fine too. But it's it's less interesting to me. It's like a little part of the flavor that I enjoy about these games. The biggest thing I enjoy about it is just that sports generally have a lot of refinement behind their rules, and the the sort of basic rule set They've is been... good and it's well understood. And and then you can do all of this kind of interesting detail level design on top of that. That's what I really love. Like it's they've been iterated to the point of almost near perfection. Right through the hundreds of years in which they've existed and then taking the the core basic concepts of these perfectly refined systems and then adding little bits on top of them to make it kind of either a little strange to what people are usually used to or something like that entices them into something they didn't think they would enjoy it's kind of what i feel is the strength of arcade sports games right i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of decisions design decisions to get made in how you capture the essence of of a sports game even given that you you've got these particular rules that you you have to do so you know i i think uh i i really like that sort of design i think that it tends to be very refined uh good design uh in in the best cases so yeah that's why there's so many sports it's not that i'm you know, a sports player or even particularly the world's most avid sports watcher. It's just, it's just, I, I just love these games. <laughs> well, speaking of arcades and refining upon not real life, is crashing cars a real thing? I guess demolition derby is <laughs> yeah. a real thing. Yeah. Um, but this is not, is not specifically an arcade game, but it's an arcade racer in a sense. And it's a racing video game, which requires you to just smash your car. And I think anyone who's listening to that understands exactly what is the next game we're going to talk about. So we're we're transitioning slowly out of the, the arcade bar into taking the arcade home with us and the, the sensibilities of arcade games and what they, they sort of... what they bring to us in terms of, like, quick gameplay, fast and furious, high scores, iterating upon stuff that already exists. This game has it all. So let's listen to some music from this next game. And let's, of course, dive straight into it.
So the next game on Bennett's list is a game that was developed by the wonderful, unfortunately, rest in peace, Criterion Games, published by EA Games. Uh, it was released back in 2004. I can't believe it's that old now. 14 mm. years old. Uh, uh, it was re- originally released for the play- on the PlayStation 2 and the original Xbox. It's part of the Burnout series. We're seeing uh, a resurgence in Burnout love, I think, in the past couple of years. It's been a long enough time in which we haven't seen this series or games similar to it. Um, so there's been a big push. Obviously, we're getting the, the sort of re-release. Is it? Burnout 3 that's getting re-released or is it Burnout I can't remember which one is I think the, it's Burnout Paradise getting... Paradise yeah I think it's Paradise yeah. that's getting the re-release but the one that you're going to be taking with you Bennett is Burnout 3 Takedown I think according to uh, you know many Burnout fans Burnout 3 is the is the sort of uh, high point of the of the of the series I wanted to pick a uh, a racing game. Periodically, I kind of get uh, sort of deeply lost in in racing uh, games. Uh, I guess the the ones that have have really resonated with me, uh, Trackmania, uh, Trackmania Nations yeah. was really a thing that grabbed me for a while. God, I love that game. I really love it too. Love it feel just that's a game so that much. that is just pure racing with sort of you know, it does have stunts, sort of fantastical tracks, but it's just pure racing and it it just feels good. Uh, the one of the ones that I've the first ones that I really fell in love with was Need for Speed Porsche Unleashed or Porsche 2000, depending where you were buying it, um, which was not a hit. Uh, it was the it, it's a version of Need Need for Speed where every car is is a Porsche. Uh, I'm not a Porsche fan yeah. or anything like that, but I it just had a very very good track design and uh okay. and a kind of good career mode and i i just played the hell out of that game and i like those games uh where you are just racing i like them fine but what i really like about burnout uh, 3 is it adds this extra dynamic layer so uh if you're unaware of burnout uh, 3 it has a boost mechanic like most of the burnout games where uh, you have amount of turbo boost really substantially increases your speed and the sensation of speed. Uh, and to refill your your boost mechanism, you have to have uh, either you have to either make other uh, people racing against you crash, uh, or mm. what you're doing most of the time is having close calls with oncoming traffic. So, um, <laughs> and that is just an amazing, I, I don't really care much for the sort of uh, 90s extreme carnage in the game. I don't care about that. But I do really love this near miss mechanism. And the way it's the dictionary definition of a risk reward system. It is, it is. So you're you're driving <laughs> you're driving at very high speed, you're boosting. And if you're playing it well, usually you're boosting all the time in Burnout 3. And they have this very nice little piece of, of uh, art design, which is that uh, I'm gonna see even from very far away, I'm gonna see the brake lights of cars that are driving away from me, and I'm gonna see the headlights of, of cars that are driving towards me. And so I can pick them out very far away and start to kind of angle towards them. And then I'm trying to aim for sort of weaving just through very tightly packed traffic and not quite hitting them. And for me, there's something hypnotic about that that is not there in most racing games. It's just like, of course, you learn the track. You you know what the ideal line is. The problem for me with most racing games is that once I know the ideal line, it's just about trying to make sure that I hit the apex of the curves and that I know that I come into the, the corners with the correct speed and it becomes very technical. Uh, Gran Turismo is, is like that. It's another game that I enjoy, yeah. but it's very 
technical and some very sort of memorization oriented. Whereas burnout three, there's so much of it, so much of it depends more on the uh, dynamic relationship with these randomized oncoming cars that you can't possibly be taking the best line most of the time. You've got to be balancing that against uh, trying to pick up boost. And that makes it much deeper and more long-lasting experience for me. It just basically uh, it stops being about memorization and it starts being about uh, reaction and, and uh, flow state and sort of this kind of hypnotic kind of gameplay. Um, I love those sorts of games. And I also love games that, that uh, ask you to push your luck. So I think that's been a kind of an ongoing theme here you have to push your luck in golden tea you push your luck in tower yeah. of doom you push your luck in 720 degrees uh i like that because it keeps me i especially love that for for sort of desert island because it keeps me coming back because it allows me any push your luck game lets you tailor the difficulty yourself right you can choose your own level of challenge which means you can infinitely uh, uh, ramp up the challenge as you get better and better at the game, or if you're having a particularly confident day, uh, or if you just want a more difficult experience, you can tune that yourself just by pushing your luck more. So you're not relying yes. on the designer coming up with a curve that can work for you through all of the period of time between when you are first learning the game through when you're a complete master of it. it it's something that uh, just grows with you if it's a push your luck game. And also, I think if I'm honest, it uh, hits a kind of a, a little gambler's mechanism in my brain. Maybe these two things are related. Maybe they're related. It kind of does have that, doesn't but it? But I also have a deep love of games with like a, with with uh, gambling mechanisms in them. I, I, if I'm honest, I really love uh, Diablo 2. I love Peggle. Uh, you know, I love uh, roguelike games like NetHack. Uh, anything with a huge amount of random number generation in it is is just like crack for me i just really uh <laughs> i can play those games forever because you're like oh just one more game and then you're like well i didn't get a good role then let's play until i get a good role uh and i i just love that i've been playing a lot of uh zach gage's forthcoming game uh, as a beta tester which is a pool game called uh, pocket run and uh you know okay. pocket run i just love as well <clears throat> it's just because every time i break uh in the in the pool game uh, you know, maybe a few balls just by by good luck go in the pockets. That's a good break. And if I have a bad break, it's like much more difficult. And so it's mm. like, well, I've got to play again. Just, just see if I can get a good break this time. And it's really yeah, kind yeah. of hitting that that kind of dopamine drip for me. <laughs> so Burnout was it's like that. Because... Yeah, I just really felt that kind of dopamine drip playing Burnout 3. Yeah, it's weird you, you mentioned that because the games that you've sort of chosen are all games that do require mostly your skillful input as a player though. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like the, the, it's almost like the best you get out of these games is being skillful, but to be like near perfection, you can never get that. It's always has to depend on pushing yourself and getting a little bit lucky. Yeah. I always think really it's interesting when, when speedrunners pick games that have like a reasonably large amount of randomness Random in them. elements. Uh, but I get it. I mean, if, if I have to play a game 500,000 times to become a good speedrunner, I'm going to get more out of it if sometimes I lose due, due to bad luck, uh, honestly. So yeah. uh, I, I definitely get that. And I think that it's it's uh, it's good element of a fun single player experience for me is is some level of randomness. What is it about like these types of games that 
doesn't they don't really exist anymore. It, it very rarely do we get these type of um, I don't know. I don't want to say unfair to the player sometimes, mm-hmm. but require a little bit of patience from the player in the sense that, as you said with the with the pool game, like immediately your first time playing it could be terrible. I think that actually, honestly, the huge wave of popularity around the Souls games uh, brought this back into the into the cultural imagination a little bit. Uh, there had been such a move amongst AAA developers in particular towards experiences that were kind of more linearized and more accessible, which is great. I mean, I think that the, the, we got a lot out of that. Uh, but um, th- this this sense of unfairness or randomness is, is definitely something that people still have a taste for. It's not just me, I don't think. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that there is a certain strain of it that has kind of come back into the, uh, into the, cultural imagination of of, uh, of of game designers so it's not it's not gone but you're not wrong that it, it was much bigger thing uh back when the uh the effects of the uh the original arcade uh experimentation uh with all the golden era games that were of course heavily randomized to make sure that they earned money <laughs> um <laughs> That was something yeah, that there was like a necessity to design then, whereas there isn't now so much. I mean, arcade games, arcade cabinet, uh, they have this this profit motive that makes them not that far away from, uh, you know, from from gambling machines, and that was something that that just heavily influenced the the design of games for so long, and and I think that there was kind of very long term backlash, especially through the uh, the early. Um, to mid 2000s and through to to now, uh, where we were, we're trying to figure out what it meant f- for uh, for games to to not be um, to, to to be completely fair and to be completely uh, sort of accessible and to approach the the largest possible audience, and uh, you're just starting to see the pendulum uh, swing back a little bit. So you know, Burnout Three is a really good example of this, uh, but it's uh, I don't think it's the only it's the only or the last example. It's just one that that really I think captures it for me. Oh, I I love these types of games as well, and it's I can't remember what I was playing recently. There was a game I was playing a Bit Summit. Bit Summit just passed here in Japan, mm-hmm. and there was a game I forget what it was called. Yeah, you know, it was this brand new game called Rival Mega Gun, and it was like it was a shoot 'em up. Where it was a two-player versus shoot 'em up, but the idea is it's not just to get the high score. The idea is you can affect what's going on on your on the other player's screen by adding in little random bullets yourself. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that to get the advantage on your opponent, you get distracted by what's happening on your screen. Mm. So you're trying to, you know, fire bullets across at like the opposite player, and you're trying to distract them. But at the same time, it's the risk reward of being distracted or being hit by your own screen. Yeah. And then the player who kind of can wipe out the amount of enemies on their own screen faster gets to turn into the boss that the the other player then has to face at the end of the the level, like a traditional shoot-em-up. So it's like there's a balance or a duality between... What do you go for? Do you go all in on trying to like damage your opponent immediately while avoiding all of the oncoming nonsense of a shoot 'em up on your own screen, or do you sort of patiently 
bide your time dodging and shooting and then become the boss. It's like, I hadn't really seen like this kind of weird risk reward for a while. Mm, mm. And those kind of games are just so much fun. As you said, it is like that little bit in your brain that's like, gotta go again. Exactly. Gotta go again. Exactly. Gotta go again. I just want to do it. Like when the, the guy who, uh, the developer had beat me, even though he's, he's obviously developing, he's played 300 to 400 hours of this game. I'm like, no, let's go again. <laughs> yeah. I think I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> All I have to do is choose the right risk and I can do this. Exactly. And I think there is a very unique quality to that. It's very good. But I am intrigued about how you can explain risk reward in this next game, Bennett, if there is such a thing. Um, this is a game I know all too well. It's uh, I don't want to say guilt, guilty pleasure because I love football more, more than most things, almost on par with video games. <laughs> so I'm very intrigued to discuss this next game. So let's listen to some form of music from this soundtrack. Uh, I haven't really paid attention to the latest installment soundtrack for this game. So Bennett, if you have a great song you enjoy, please let me know. Um, but... Let's listen to oh, some wait, wait, I should say there is a cut oh. copy track that plays in the latest version of this game. So, uh, well, they now we know. Now, now I'm writing. I'm writing a bloody note that we, we. That's the that's the music everyone's about to hear. The the band in which Bennett could have been an international famous superstar through, um, and you would have appeared in a video game anyway. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> the weird reality of life. So let's listen to some music from Cut Copy. Now let's, of course, dive straight into the next game on Bennett's List. Jumping into the next game on Bennett's list, it's funny how things work out, isn't it? <laughs> uh, we have a football game, a soccer game if you're an America listener, or you live in Japan like I do and I have to mispronounce the thing I've been saying my whole life. Um, it's, of course, developed by EA. There are literally only two football games in the world, one of them being the Pro Evolution Soccer Series uh, and the other one being the FIFA Series. Now, Bennett just put latest installment on his... Uh, message to me and of course the latest one is FIFA 18 mm -hmm. they come as a yearly annual series it's a it classes under the football simulation video game genre and it's released for every platform every year around the September time so this September we will have FIFA 19 it's a bit too early for Bennett to receive that so he's going to have to go to Delfino Plaza with FIFA 18 <laughs> Bennett yeah, so FIFA. Do you like football? Do I like? I mean, I like it. Okay, I watch it. Uh, I watch uh, usually the uh, the Euros and uh, just the finals, and I watch the World Cup. I do not watch regular league football 
ever. Oh, okay, okay. So, uh, okay. you know, I'm, I'm, that's how I am with most sports. I'm the same with basketball. You know, I'm the same with, with American football. Uh, same with cricket. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 have, I have some appreciation for, for football. But, yeah, th- I don't come to FIFA as a football fan. I come to it as a video game fan. And let me oh, just say, like, okay. I've been playing FIFA since the beginning, which I guess is like 93. I want to say that the first FIFA game is actually that Manchester United game. I'm, I think there's a guess, but I, th- I think that, that that's the first in the series. Um, and I remember when that came out and the first time that I played it, just thinking, this is junk. We were pl- we'd been playing so much uh, <laughs> kickoff. Dino Dini's kickoff, kickoff two, yep. and Dino Dini's goal. Uh, I guess I'm not sure he made the third one, uh, but but anyway. So yeah, his games uh, where it's very fast top-down view, and the ball is not uh, at all anchored to the feet of the characters. You're just like this. You're this kind of fast-moving collider trying to keep the ball sort of slightly under control. And we played so much. Uh, sensible soccer, which is uh, again a top-down view, really tiny what little a fantastic game. Yeah, so it's sensible soccer, of course, was inspired by an arcade sports game, uh, the Tecmo uh, World Cup, uh, which was okay. uh, you know, I did not know that it's uh, it was a trackball actuated game. Yeah, the sensible software guys just they loved that game and they wanted to kind of capture it on home computers, so they made sensible soccer and just a really playable game. Little bit of ball magnetism to the foot, but not that much. And really, like, you can get a lot of different sort of football uh, greatness out of that game. And along comes this kind of side-on view of, of uh, the first F- FIFA games, where the ball is just, like, stuck to your player. Everything is just slow. It's this kind of crawl of a game. Absolutely terrible to play. Really bad time. Uh, and I guess, uh, of course, the first side-on one I played was uh, international soccer on the, the the game that came with the Commodore 64 in, in Europe and Australia, uh, which, which was the same thing, more or less. These characters viewed from the side, sprites yeah. uh, trying to... It's not a very good uh, perspective to, to, to play football from, at least uh, on 8- and 16-bit computers where it's just sprites. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, this was on the Amiga. And... Uh, you know, they kept iterating it. And of course, FIFA, I guess, 96 was the first one I think of, I saw with uh, with sort of a CD-ROM uh, audio track for commentary and starting to have like a really big uh, FIFA license and having like all of the teams and so on, but still pretty rotten game of, of football compared to Sensible World of Soccer 96 uh, on the Amiga. And, but uh, just... I think the commercial power of being able to bring actual football ga- football fans uh, into the game playing kind of arena to buy this game every year meant that it could survive. And they just iterated it and they iterated it and iterated mm. it and iterated it. And it's now going on like, uh, what is it? It's almost uh, uh, 25 years, I think, of this yeah. series of just 94? iteration. And I'm given to believe like by other developers, I don't know how true this is, but I'm given to believe that there is like original code still in that thing. It's not like they start fresh every year. It's They just they just literally just build on top of what's already there. So that's very rare in video games. Right? It's very rare to have a, a series like that that just doesn't get a total reboot That is a, that is a refinement every year. And as a result, it is extremely rare in that every year, more or less, it gets better. That's not true of Madden. 
Uh, it's not true of NBA 2K. It's not true of almost every sports series ever. FIFA really does get consistently just a tiny bit better every year. And that's why I say have been, latest. There version. have been some years where they have kind of to a to someone who has played FIFA a lot, the like the, they they have the feeling ingrained in their muscles. Yeah. And then with FIFA, the slightest change, yeah, something that that becomes like a drastic new engine change, like when they switched over to the 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 brand new EA engine when they switched over to Frostbite. Yeah. Like there was like that change where your muscles didn't correspond to the game <laughs> as it did like the year before. And to everyone else who had played either game who didn't play them that often, would they would not notice anything. Yeah. But like to the people who have played hours and hours of it, and the muscle memories there, it was like, Ugh. oh, there are some what there, is there are some missteps too. Like sometimes some particular mechanic, like the free kick mechanic, will be bad in a given year or something like that. Yes, but they've tried to change the penalty mechanic like five different times. Right, and they like or that. the goalkeepers might be terrible one year, but. On average, this is a series that gets better and better and better. And I have been playing FIFA 18, and I love it. Um, what do I love so much about this game? And there's another game that uh, I almost picked for this list, uh, which is Virtua Tennis. And I think these two things uh, yes. have a lot in common. Which the the main thing is, uh, in tennis is the easy case. In tennis, we have a... a, a problem that arises in 90s when we start to have 3d graphics which is that we now need the players to animate using motion capture so they can look realistic right like that starts to become mm. a requirement but video games have to have like it's a kind of fundamental requirement something has to happen immediately after you push the button or you don't feel like you are controlling the character right or immediately after you push the joystick or the button the character has to react to that and those two things are at odds, right? So if I need to uh, have a tennis swing animation that's going to take two seconds to play, uh, then there's going to be like a second of delay between when you hit the button and when uh, the, the the racket hits the, the ball. In tennis, what the Virtua Tennis people had this genius realization that's so important to every subsequent good action video game, uh, which is that since we know when the ball is going to arrive at the at the player's uh, depth in the court or at the baseline or where, wherever that might be, we can start your animation two seconds early and you will still hit the ball at the exact moment that you want to as a player, right? You want, it's a given yeah. in tennis, you want to hit the ball when it's coming past you. You don't want to hit it at any <laughs> other instant. So if I have to hit the button two or three seconds early and start winding up this shot, I'm still going to feel good control because the, the ball will be hit at the moment that I want it to be hit, right? And that's easy to do in tennis, Man managed to do it in the mid-90s for virtual tennis, but it is colossally difficult to do in other sports because we don't know in advance when you're going to want to kick the ball in 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 football right we just don't yeah it could be at any time and yet yes. they have managed to refine and refine and refine fifa to the point where it can work more or less in the way that that virtual tennis worked just by having extremely good uh, kind of moment-to-moment -moment AI, not just for the uh, assisting characters, not just for the enemy characters, but also for your, the character that you're controlling. So when you're playing FIFA now, uh, you as like a, uh, a huge fan of it, maybe don't even notice this anymore, but I come back to FIFA like every two or three years 
getting ready for the World okay. Cup, really, I come back to it and I, I always marvel at how much better it has gotten in that time. Getting in the spirit. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm getting in the spirit for the World Cup. Um, but it, it always strikes me how much it gets more and more like this every time. That when I'm playing FIFA, what I'm doing is usually pressing the kick button before I get the ball. Uh, that's how you have to play it if you want to play it well. And uh, that is... There's something just lovely about how that feels because it means this is one of the only games where you have the sense of zero latency zero delay uh between when i want to kick the ball and when the guy kicks the ball because i start telling him in advance and all of that input lag on a modern tv all of the input lag on the on the modern console uh melts away because i'm telling you to kick the ball ages before you get the ball and then you kick it yeah. at the exact right moment and it feels magical. It's just like a magic feeling to it. I just love the sort of physical sensation and the sense of embodiment in playing uh, modern FIFA. It's so, it feels so it physical. It feels like... Go ahead. It feels like when you play real football and <clears throat> you have to open your body yeah. or position your body to receive the ball and from then you yep. like immediately within like a split second bounce off and then do something different exactly and it is that in fifa you're like waiting for it to to land at your feet and you you can see the shadow of the ball coming across the pitch which is like another beautiful thing i love about yeah i love games like, i love games i love that moment in games where you're playing the game two or three seconds ahead of where it currently is yeah i love it yeah. in fighting and games like, and i really love it in fifa you have to think where should i be two or three seconds from now and then when, when that syncs up with where the ball is, it's the best feeling in the world. And the weird thing about FIFA is the longer you play it, the more you understand the limitations of its system. Yeah. Which means you can game it because you know exactly how not only your players are going to be able to respond to the their own animations and the way the ball is going to land, but also your opponents. Yeah. So, you know, if you do certain things, as you said, two or three seconds ahead, there is no physical way in which the game like the player can respond unless they are also thinking two or three seconds ahead right. and they position their player but then that's a risk because if you don't do that then their player is out of position i think that's there one of the most limit- it's one of the most interesting forms of multiplayer yomi really is yes. you know, we think about yomi yeah. being that i'm thinking about what what you're about to do and you're, you're thinking what think i'm about, about to do yeah. if we're both <laughs> thinking in, like a little bit into the future it's very interesting and i definitely get a sense uh playing playing fifa that uh that we're both just living slightly in the future and kind of forming yes. plans you're abandoning it's plans it's so true yeah it is so true because the more you play as i said the more you understand the limitations of what the game because it is a game mm. like you can't do everything that you could do on a, on a football pitch yep. like but so there is a limitation to what the animations or how the ai characters can respond to your inputs mm. and you can read that by looking at what the position of everyone is and what more than likely is going to happen and thinking like those two or three seconds ahead makes you far better than people who are reactionarily responding yeah to getting the ball or something like that. And, you know, the mechanics, the input mechanics of the game really encourage this way of thinking as well. It's not just simply a case where, like, the the absolute best players think ahead, which is true in probably every multiplayer game. But in FIFA, I think it's it's embodied in the way that the game controls and the the way that the the mechanics work. And it it brings you to that point just so much quicker, I think, than than something like Street Fighter does. So I just just love that. That's that's it for me with FIFA. It's not really about... uh, 
playing my favorite team or anything like that. It's not it's not about any of the sort of <laughs> sense of being there or the you know the 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 graphics or anything like that. It is just purely the feeling in the hand uh, and that sense of planning ahead. And when a when a when a strategy comes off, it's it's just a lovely uh, feeling of of of. Uh, of success somehow and i really i just really well, enjoy Bennett, for that may 29th yeah you your copy of fifa 18 will be freely updated with the world cup yeah patch yeah. so you can explore you can do your mind game two three second ahead gameplay <laughs> yeah uh, and get yourself in the spirit for the World Cup. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's going to be Australia's year. It's no Italy this time. <laughs> I mean, being English and also understanding the limitations of our real own football team, it is certainly not going to be England's year or Japan's year. So I'm just going to enjoy it. <laughs> All right. Okay, so, so let's go to the next one. We're going to move on to the next game. And this is more about a game of less thinking about two or three seconds ahead, and more about thinking 200 to 300 years ahead. Um, this is a game about remembering what happened a thousand years ago and what is happening right now in your current situation. This is a game that blew up, considering the sort of barrier of entry of this type of game, this game has, even since it's released in 2012, has just continued to be successful and one of the highest concurrent games played on Steam very consistently. So let's listen to some music from this next game. And let's, of course, dive straight into the second to last game on Bennett's list. Next game on Bennett's list and the second to last one is a game developed by Paradox Development Studio and published by Paradox Interactive themselves. It released, as I said, in 2012 for PC. Uh, it's it falls under the, the the sort of genre of grand strategy, like very epic in scale strategy games. Uh, similar, you know, similar to some of the 4X games that you might have heard of. Uh, it's I think Paradox is one of their most successful games ever. Uh, City Skyline being probably their most successful. It's a game where you sort of take, it takes place in the Middle Ages and you build a dynasty, almost, your your own dynasty through your very first uh, king or queen or such, right through your lineage, through a story of time. Bennett, the next game on your list is Crusader Kings 2. Mm. Why is this going with you? Uh, well, I, I really felt like if I was going to uh, to a desert island, I need some kind of management or optimization game. I really, uh, 
feel like those are games that you can play for a really long time and you can play them creatively. I definitely would want to have some kind of game where I can uh, exert some creativity on how I play and have it kind of reflected in the in the game. These sorts of games really are good for that. Um, but it was tough to pick one. I mean, I think I've definitely, like most people, I've done hundreds of hours of, of uh, Civilization. The problem with Civilization is uh, it tends to eventually break and become too easy for most people. Um, I've done hundreds of hours of uh, Railroad Tycoon, which I really, I think, can be good as well, but maybe doesn't offer you so many options. Uh, I really loved uh, Master of Magic back in the 90s, a Civilization clone set in a kind of fantastical universe with tactical combat, uh, but it's, yeah. it's kind of broken. Uh, <laughs> so it's difficult to pick one. I, I really love Crusader Kings uh, 2 for a number of different reasons. One is um, I really think a big part of what, what makes these games enjoyable is their historical situation. Uh, so Crusader Kings is so committed to kind of the historic part of it, which is uh, medieval Europe, uh, kingdoms and, and kind of warfare, that it's got links to Wikipedia pages of the characters that you meet and play uh, within the game. Um, so it's, it's, it's really kind of situated like that. And the whole time that you're playing, you're kind of learning and absorbing sort of facts about different types of succession laws that existed in Europe or different uh, things that people might be doing, different medieval siege technologies or different like, yeah. like a lot of it is, is sort of seems pretty dry, but it's, uh, it's sort of, there's so much of it that it sort of weaves a, a rich tapestry. And it's one of those games that you play and you kind of tell yourself a story while you're playing it. So you, you yes. pick a character. It could be anybody in Europe. I usually try to make it quite difficult. So it will be like the third son of some kind of failing king uh, in Wales or something like that. And my goal is to become the yeah, grand hometown. overlord. Of... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So I want to become like the grand overlord of, of Europe from there, which is sort of like against the odd situation. You think, well... <laughs> The grand overlord. <laughs> it's like what? What does that involve? I mean, I got to start with let's let's see who I've got in my court. What am I? What am I dealing with here? And you like, I've got an idiot as my chancellor. I've got like a evil person as my bishop. You know, I'm going through. I've got to replace all these people. But I, all the talented people are in different towns. And I've got to now like kind of scheme to get them married to people from my from my court. Maybe I'll maybe I'll send some woman off to be uh, one of my one of my wards. I'll send off to be married to this extremely smart but incredibly ugly uh, spy master who's in Prague. And now that they're married, well, she's still very fond of me because I've made her a really good match. Uh, he definitely doesn't want to come to Wales, but he wants to go with her, and so I'll invite them to court. And she's like, "Well, you know, honey." Uh, We've got this invitation to this tiny little uh, court in Wales. I really think we should go. And so they come and you've got this kind of super genius spy master now who's there at the behest of his wife who, who owes you uh, for, for her whole uh, fortune. And you're just doing these kind of maneuvers over and over again. And eventually you've got like this kind of super team. And then you start to like scheme and you're making deals and and, but now you've been playing long enough that you've got children and your children want a little piece of, 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 of your relatives trying to get a piece of, of your kingdom and you're having to keep them happy. It's just like, I don't know, I mean, the, the stories that come out of it are, uh, are rich and funny and uh, beautiful and, and either 
range between kind of completely surreal and completely realistic. And there's just a lot of depth in that game. That that and it's it's difficult as well. It's like to play it well is I think at least for me uh, much more difficult than Civilization. Uh, although you know the kind of accessibility is 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 not uh, at the same level, it's more difficult to play uh, from a kind of a frustration point of view as well. But it's it's just that kind of richness that comes through uh, in a in a kind of very light touch hands-off kind of way i just i just really enjoy crusader kings 2 it's that's the weird thing about crusader kings 2 is because as you said it, it, it's more challenging than a game like civilization which in itself some might think is a challenging game um and it has all of these wikipedias that you need to read or keep up with to make sure that you're not losing in the game or <laughs> you know basically it requ- it's required re- it requires reading um which is weird because this game is played by an average of like 12,000 players a day and it, the average playtime and i think this is incredible the average playtime across all players is 99 hours yeah it's crazy but you, you kind of need to, to 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 get the most out of it as well you know it's one of the things that i love the most about it is you can play that game almost completely non-violently if you do it well and you get a little bit of luck right you can you, you, you can just uh, use laws and a kind of force of economic prowess and diplomatic prowess to, to gather up quite a lot of land. And that's kind of uh, that's kind of amazing and, and beautiful in its own way. And I, I just think some of the problems that it gives you are sort of interesting and very much contrary to other video game tropes. So like the fact that uh, I can't just gather up lands and, and hold them all myself. Uh, I have to be giving out lands to to my relatives and to my vassals uh, in order to keep them loyal. And so you're constantly like giving up power and giving up your gains and making kind of really interesting sacrifices, which is something that uh, conquest games usually don't involve, you know, from... Uh, master yeah. of orion and, and imperium forward it's like always you know no you you own everything you conquered it's, it, yeah it's like in the title like right imperium. <laughs> yeah like, exactly you, there is a certain way you have to go about things usually it's yeah it's forced onto you yeah and in this case it's it's just like it's just this kind of thing where i have to keep the particular titles i need and no more everything else has to go out to other people i have to give them power but not too much power where they can kind of supersede me and yeah it's just that's fascinating to me and very much different different flavor from civilization well you can take it with you and you can uh (laughs) once you've had enough of playing golf in the bar you can uh, come back to uh become the grand overlord of europe All from my sweet little. Please, on your next game, start from the uh, whatever whatever Gwyneth is is called back in the like ten ten hundreds. Mm-hmm. Whatever Gwyneth was called at the time, start from Gwyneth and see if you can work your way <laughs> <Exactly>. up. <laughs> well, Bennett, unfortunately, it's about time that we move on to your last game, mm-hmm. and the last game is a very intriguing choice because it's kind of something that. In and around, you had some hand in being a part of the project of Sports Friends. Mm-hmm. But you've very specifically chosen an aspect of Sports Friends, a game in that. Um, but the game is like a local multiplayer game that has no graphics. <laughs> yeah. And you're on an island by yourself. 
Well, I mean, I'm I'm going to have to play this one with uh, some of the residents of uh, of Hotel Delfino on the <laughs> Delfino Island. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very intrigued to see how you can justify <laughs> this going with you or to a deserted <laughs> island. <laughs> so let's listen to some music from the last game on Bennett's List, and let's of course talk about his final game. So the last game, the final game on Mr. Bennett Foddy's list today, is a game that was released uh, for PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4. Uh, it was also, was this one specifically, uh, like the prototype was a web game? Am I correct in thinking? Uh, Joust? No, no, no. The prototype was uh, was just a Mac game. Uh, for, ah, and the original okay. prototype was for um, the Wiimote but it's you know ah, it's an ah, yes. it's it's an adaptation of a of a uh, a number of uh, folk games as I'm given to understand involving uh, candles or involving uh, spoons with with eggs or lemons uh, balanced on them. Um, oh, okay. So, so Doug Doug uh, was uh, doing his PhD uh, in in games game design in Copenhagen and kind of really interested in and focusing on folk games, uh, and uh, you know I think that that this this was inspired. By that, you know, look, I feel a little bit funny picking a, a game that I did work on a little bit, but I really, yes. I really wanted to. I was thinking about this. You're I not felt, the first. I felt bad about uh, not having any indie games on here, being an indie game designer. But the truth is that if I'm going to take something to a, a deserted island, I need games that have a lot of work to them just so it will last me. I mean, that's just a fact. And that indie games, as much as I love them, tend to be smaller in scope and you tend to play them for a while and then stop. And of course there are exceptions. I mean, people hmm. have put thousands of hours into Minecraft as one example, but um, <laughs> the, uh, thinking about the, the indie games that meant the most to me, mostly I don't want to play them again. I mean, I played Steven Sausage Roll through twice and I can't have that experience again. It's it, All those puzzles are, are it's just, solved yeah, it's... for me now. Uh, yeah. So I, I was thinking, well, what's an indie game that I would be happy to play uh, till the till the end of time? And uh, Joust. And let me say in my defence that although it is part of Sports Friends that I worked on, I did not work on Joust. We had pretty good uh, boundaries on ownership between the different games in that package. And uh, okay. beyond a little bit of bug fixing and testing, I don't think yeah, it's not my game. For anyone who doesn't actually know, Sports Friends was a package for PlayStation Three and Four. Mm-hmm. And one of the games in this package is a game called 
uh, Pole Riders, which is a pole vaulting game created by Bennett. Yes, but uh, so but yeah, I was responsible Bennett... for that for Super Pole Riders, and then Doug uh, was responsible for for Joust. So I think of it as his game. It's not really it's, it's nothing really to do with to do with. Me. I mean, realistically, you could just take Sports Friends as the game, <laughs> and then you could have all the games. Yeah, but I I, I you know it's. This is the one I'm I'm gonna pick. I think that it's it's uh, meaty <laughs> enough to be uh, to be the game that I that I take. I don't need to be greedy here and take a compendium of games. I'm going to uh, I'm going to just say uh, JS Joust. Now, uh, yeah, it's true you can't play Joust by yourself. So I need at least uh, uh, some kind of sentient uh, animal species on the island, or maybe I'm I'm on the island with a companion. Uh, or you know, just one other person, it would be enough to make this interesting. Uh, but it is, it is, it is. I think a game that rewards uh, long, uh, long years of play and getting better and better at it, and it really does support a kind of interesting meta game between individuals as well. So I think it would work uh, well. Uh, I guess for those of you who haven't played uh, Joust, it's it's simple enough to describe. You have a, a PlayStation Move controller representing a like a candle or similar. And so long as it's lit, you're alive. And if, it, if the light goes out, you're dead. And uh, it's using the motion sensor of the controller. It's like a candle. If you move it too fast, it'll go out. You can move it slowly, uh, but not too fast. So your goal is to make the other person's candle go out and to keep yours lit. And that's just difficult because you have to move fast <laughs> to jostle the other person's uh, candle. But if you try to move too fast, you're going to jostle your own candle. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, it, 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 to make it uh, not just a full-on violent combat sport, there is music playing uh, in slow motion in the background that indicates how fast you can move. And if the music is playing slowly, you can only move very, very gently. And periodically it speeds up and you can move fast for just a second, but not for very long. And then you have to slow back down. So the whole thing becomes this very slow motion kind of ballet dance of of uh, moving, trying to get closer to the other person to reach their controller, but not let them reach your controller. And uh, provided that you have sort of relatively similar wingspan, uh, it's it's a very kind of interesting, deep, competitive uh, game with lots of different opportunities for different tricks and gambits and uh, ruses and uh, and so on. And I love that it's a multiplayer game that has eye contact, that has uh, some kind of physicality to it, and doesn't just purely take place on a screen. Uh, so it's just it's just a really good time. It, tell me how how are you going to do this? How are you going to do this on a deserted island? <laughs> well, like <laughs> maybe I'll just take it and just hope that uh, someone else gets washed up there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess Adam. Adam is te- technically already there. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, he's also at the same <laughs> island. Yeah, so I can play with Adam. Look, I mean, a bunch of the games that I've picked have local multiplayer modes to them that are a little better than the than the uh, regular modes. It's true of IK Plus. It's true of Tower of Doom. It's true of Golden Tea. And it's true of uh, it's true of uh, FIFA, of course. And I yes. think it maybe is even true of Burnout Three. I think there's local multiplayer modes of that too. So. Um, you know, I, if I have a friend there, my gaming experience gets twice as good for sure. So I'm sorry okay. if I'm breaking the rules, but that's it. I mean, <laughs> I mean considering very coincidentally, Adam did <laughs> choose 
the same island, usually I would create alternate dimensions when someone chooses the same island. Right. If we're being very law specific. Um, but considering it's coincidental, and you need, you do need someone, don't you? You need someone to go, go with you yeah, so, and play these local so, so, so Adam is, is about the same uh, height and weight as me, and uh, it would be a pretty close match, I think, uh, playing Joust uh, over time. So, so that, that sounds, <laughs> sounds pretty good. We're not going to get a you full guys- circle of 18 players but we will be able to play yeah that's one true v one. but that's very true <laughs> i mean considering you need for a great experience to have 16 and you are just one <laughs> yeah. i think we could we could push for another person <laughs> at the very least but bennett thank you so much for coming on the show today it's been an utter pleasure having you and talking with you about the eight games that you've chosen it's been a fantastic experience thank you so much well thanks so much for having me it's fun to talk about these games this was an interesting exercise for me as well as i mean as i said at the outset these what i would really play on a deserted island would be you know five hundred thousand different games but uh you know having to pick eight (laughs) it's not natural for me but here's where i wound up (laughs) this next question might 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 uh be a bit more to your taste Mm -hmm. then because there is one more question i have to ask you before you uh disappear into Delfino Plaza to play Joust <laughs> with your one friend. And that is, you know, we talk about games on Final Games and we, we specifically have highlighted eight that you have thought about and very much put a lot of thought into choosing. But if you could choose a console, just one console, because as you said, with Joust, like the way you interact with the controller and the experience without even looking at the game is uh, what makes that game so special. Mm. And the way we interact with games through a console and stuff like that is can can also be important. So if you can only take one console with you, barring PC, my friend, because I'm not allowing you to emulate all those hundreds of thousands of games. But if you can only take one console, bearing in mind the back catalog, what would you take with you? Well, I mean, I think uh, there's two ways to answer this. The, the, the practical way to answer it is I would take a PS4 because it's got all of these emulated titles as part of its catalog there as well and it just has more games and if i wasn't going to do that i would do ps2 just because of the giant catalog of games right but yeah really the kind of emotional like sort of sentimental answer which i think is the, the real way we, we're going to lean here i tempted to say an amiga 500 but really the for games that that stand up and can still be played today it's going to be a nintendo gamecube and i feel it's such a naff wow. such a naff answer but i loved my gamecube so much it really really was great well you can you can you can take the gamecube with you and you can take all the wonderful games on it including super mario sunshine yeah. where you're gonna be spending the rest of your days uh you can also what else can you play that's great on the game i remember a great game i spent hours and hours playing i mean i imagine if i played it now it would be terrible which was godzilla destroy all monsters melee and that was only on the gamecube that was a that was a wonderful time playing that with my brother. So you can enjoy all those wonderful games with your GameCube. But Bennett, please tell the wonderful listeners who have made it this far where they can find you on the internet and uh, what they should be checking out of yours. I imagine they already know some of the wonderful things that you're up to. Well, it's BFOD on Twitter and it's foddy.net is my website, which has all of my web games and links to my other stuff hosted on there. My most recent game, uh, Getting Over It with Bennett Foddy, you can get on iPhone or on Steam uh, for Mac and PC. Uh, so that that's that's basically that. It's going to be a while before I'm ready to publish anything new, but uh, you sign up for my mailing list if you want to find out about that uh, when when it happens. 
And also, if you haven't played either Co-op or you haven't played Getting Over It with Bennett Foddy or you haven't played Pole Riders or any of Bennett's wonderful games, please check them out. They are both equally wonderful and unique, but also incredibly frustrating and challenging too. Going back to the risk-reward systems that we've talked about today, Bennett is the master. He is the master of giving you that. And uh, especially in games like Getting Over It, those choke points, mm. the, the, the moments of great glory that could either take you over the edge to pure ecstasy or to catastrophic failure. Bennett is the master of producing them. So please check out Bennett's games if you haven't already. But Bennett, thank you so much for appearing on the show today. It has been an utter pleasure to have you. And I'm really glad you enjoyed this exercise. Yep. Cool. Thanks for having me. And uh... No problem. <laughs> and thank you. Yeah. Thank you to everyone who's listened to this episode of Final Games. Of course, as always, you can find Final Games on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on ACAS, and all those wonderful places. Uh, you can, of course, rate and review it, as always. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter, Liam Edwards, at Liam BME. You can also find the show at Final Games Show. Uh, of course, mentioned at the start of this episode was a small little advert about the new game I made myself. Uh, my mo- first recent solo project, which is a endless runner about a Japanese salaryman who has to get to work. And he runs through the beautiful Japanese countryside that I'm surrounded by. So if you want to play like a little free game to pass 10 minutes, see what kind of high score you can get. There is a slight risk reward system in that game as well similar not not of any <laughs> not of any closeness to Bennett's um, but if you would like to waste some time and play a free game you can go to liamedwards.itchy.io uh, forward slash sirenzuksan and you can check that out as well let me know what you thought but until then thank you so much to Bennett and thank you so much to you guys for listening and I'll see you again next time goodbye <laughs> <laughs>